0: BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts.
1: Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website, and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, in 1786, Robert Burns had a collection of his verse published. It was Poems Chiefly in the Scottish Dialect, and it made him famous. He'd been a struggling tenant farmer on the point of emigration yet was now celebrated as Caledonius Bard, the heaven-taught ploughman, and his reputation spread around the world. English Romantic poets made pilgrimages to his cottage, his songs were sung by revolutionaries in Germany and China, and all Lang Syne has become an international anthem at New Year. With me to discuss Robert Burns are Robert Crawford, Professor of Modern Scottish Literature at the University of St Andrews, Fiona Stafford, Professor of English at the University of Oxford, and Murray Pittock, Bradley Professor of English Literature and Pro Vice Principal at the University of Glasgow. Murray Pittock, what was Robert Burns' early life like?
2: Uh, Well, Burns grew up in poverty because his farmer, who was effectively a landscape gardener, had become a farmer and couldn't really make his farms work and uh, he he was uh, spent a good deal of his teenage years laboring uh, on his father's farm being really the, the the source of labor and then a very dispiriting time in his early 20s when his father's uh, his father's being sued for back rent payments uh which almost brought the family to penury but he did his, his father was who was often impressed his contemporaries especially his contemporaries of higher social rank uh, tried very hard to give Robert Burns an education, and particularly the influence, both uh, in uh, in tutoring and at and at his school, of John Murdoch was important. And John Murdoch, John Murdoch, though taught Burns for a relatively brief time formally, but he remained a contact and in touch with Burns, uh, in at a later period when Burns was a teenager. And so Burns, Burns devoured books at an early age, but he had very few of them and yet by his early mid-twenties he's described as having a large library uh, and en route he uh, certainly acquired some facility in French he tried and failed many times to learn Latin and as uh, my colleague Nigel Wiesk has recently demonstrated he actually made a stab at Greek in his later life So this is in
1: Asha. was there land, the land that his father tried to farm was it particularly
2: difficult land? It probably was, it probably was not great land um, uh, at any of the farms, he did. But I think that it's probably the case that William Burns was not a great farmer, and it's those probably burnest I should say, and probably the case that Robert uh, was not a particularly great farmer either, because sometimes he chose rather he was some he was didn't choose the first farm he saw and that was he sometimes turned down farms, but he often he did choose farms that. Other people might have torn down a this way is as could a anticipate tenant problem as a tenant farmer, yes yeah.
1: you mentioned murder. Could you tell us a bit more about him? who taught him? Yeah. Uh, not every day he was yeah. hired for a little while and so on, but he obviously was an educative influence
2: he was he was he was uh, a graduate uh, an educated an educated man, and appears to have had though I think the the detailed documentary evidence is lacking really a very close relationship with Barnes. certainly he spent. They, he crop ups, crops up a lot in Burns' early life.
1: He was called heaven-taught ploughman and much was made of his from-the-earth, earthy, uh, very almost peasant, like they'd have said, in what we used to call Europe. Um, how true was that when he was in his, by the time he was in his mid-twenties? You mentioned that he'd got in a, a decent-sized library by then.
2: Uh, he had. He always had problems with finance, but they were, to some extent, structural uh, what does, does now, that mean? Well, when he had, uh, was getting the subscribers, or rather his friends were getting the subscribers together for the Kilmarnock edition of Poems, uh, um, his putative father-in-law, Armour, was going to sue him uh, for, uh, um, for what he now... Since he now thought Burns had a significant amount of money, and Burns put all his family assets into his brother Gilbert's name and keeping and it was not the last time he supported Gilbert so in the end, by the although he had a good salary every year in the 1790s in particular it was about 40% or 50% more than Jane Austen enjoyed as an, uh, as an annual income in 1805 uh, he nonetheless could only get himself onto a strong financial footing long term by breaking his brother Gilbert which he absolutely declined to do
1: Thank you, Fiona Stafford. Locally, and before he became known as a poet, he caused a stir over his relationship with several women. What do we know about that?
0: Um, well, we know a little bit about what he says himself. Um, so when he is. Uh, writing an autobiographical letter he describes how love and poesy began together and he tells the story about uh, one of the plus sides of being on the farm I think was when he was working on the harvest age 15 uh, and by his side was a very attractive 14 year old and uh, he had worked out that uh, in order to um, perhaps uh, get some tender feelings from uh, from his co-worker he, he, could, he could try a poem or a song um, so he makes no secret of that. Uh, in fact, he's rather proud of it. Um, but we also know that um, not, not much later than that, uh, he had a relationship uh, with Elizabeth Patton, um, a servant girl, and she became pregnant um, by him, uh, and there was a scandal about that. Uh, he had to answer for that in the Kirk. Um, he didn't marry Elizabeth um, by the time she had her baby, he was already interested in Jean Armour, um, who also became pregnant by him quite quickly. Uh, he also had a complication with Mary Campbell. We don't know quite what happened there. Uh, it's possible she was pregnant as well. So he was—he was one of these um, obviously very attractive men who didn't get really going for either or, um, if there were plenty of opportunities.
1: <laughs> and he had quite a lot of children.
0: He had quite a lot of children. Can yes. you fill
1: spil- fill out that rather uh, uh, prim remark of mine?
0: Uh, well, Jean Armour, um, who became his wife, um, quite a brave woman. Um, she had nine children. She did um, say
1: he should have had two wives, didn't she?
0: She did. Yes, <laughs> I think that was supposed to be an understatement, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then he then he had several several other uh, children as well. Um, Elizabeth Patton definitely had a baby. Um, there was. Uh, a woman in Edinburgh, Jenny Clough, um, who seems to have had one of his babies, and quite a bit later in Dumfries and Park um, had a baby uh, by, uh, by and, Robert Burns as well.
1: And did, did his wife, Jean, have nine children? Yes. So he totted up to quite a few. I read from what you've written and from I've read elsewhere that he, he tried his best to look after them rather unusually.
0: Yes, it, it, exactly. He he did um, feel concerned about his children um, and he, he did you know want to maintain them but it didn't mean he necessarily wanted to be married to the mother Um, so maintaining the children didn't necessarily go with uh, making the mother respectable which at that time was obviously quite complicated.
1: For these for one or two of these misdeeds he was made to do public penance in church now what was his relationship with church and what, what form did the public penance take?
0: Um, he had to uh, go and st- sit on the cutty stool, um, no, what? the cutty stool, a small stool, and be uh, reprimanded publicly uh, in in church, uh, which he did not think much of.
1: Which church is this? Which one? Which which denomination are we talking about? Presbyterian.
0: Yes, Presbyterian uh, Kirk. Um, and I think um, he went he went through through that experience, and so did some of his friends as well. And it it tended to. Um, Inspire uh, satire on the Kirk, actually. That's, mm. that's how he reacted to it. So and he. Oh, sorry. After you. I was going to say um, a poem like Holy Willie's Prayer, which he didn't publish as part of the uh, poems, chiefly in the Scottish dialect, was inspired partly by one of his friends having that experience.
1: And Holy Willie's Prayers. Holy Willie is saying, can you finish all that off?
0: Well, Holy, Holy Willie is supposedly confessing uh, to the Lord um, and saying his prayers uh, and hoping that he's going to be one of the saved, which he assumes he is, uh, which means that his own uh, little misdemeanours in this direction are obviously going to be forgiven. Um, so Burns is pointing out the hypocrisy of the church elders, really, in that poem. But it's very funny, so it's, uh, it's definitely a satirical poem.
1: But organised religion was something that he veered away from quite early on and stayed away from, although could he be called religious in any way?
0: Um, well, I think he was, and I think it did have an effect. I think he would definitely be seen as moderate in his, his religion. Um, he didn't agree with the kind of um, extreme Calvinism of, at the time, but I don't think that meant he was completely without any religious feeling. Um, Do
1: we have evidence for that?
0: I don't think we have hard evidence, but I think um, in some of his poems you get a sense of it. But I think he's more comfortable writing about the deal than about God.
1: About the devil than about God. Mm. Yes, he keeps missing out the V. Yes, he does. And <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's dialect. We're coming to that. Robert Robert Crawford. It was a very difficult existence to be a farmer in, in, in the north, anywhere. Um, and so it was punishing physically, and that stayed with him, didn't it? That had an impact in him. How did he manage to go... And it was exhausting. So how did he get the energy to... Well, to writing, that obviously flowed through him, but to to get published, to enter into all the business of that... How did he get going? Well, his poems
3: were circulating, I think, both orally and um, in manuscript before he published his first book. He came not just from a textual culture, but particularly from his mother's side, from an oral culture. She was a great singer of songs. When he writes about her, she's often singing. Uh, There was an old uh, relative of his mother's who also lived in the house who had a huge store of folk tales and songs as well. And those fed into the poems that Burns is making in the early 1700s 1780s. So they're circulating among friends in manuscript. He gets a reputation as a wit, uh, and then in reputation sim- where? Uh, locally in in Ayrshire, in the west of Scotland.
1: So we're talking about which area, Kilmarnock area?
3: N- n- round, round about Ayr, round about the farms that he's living yeah. on, which are outside Ayr. Then his first book is published by subscription in Kilmarnock in 1786. Uh, In an edition of about 600, half the copies are subscribed for in advance. His family, his friends uh, and himself, they're all gathering subscriptions. Burns is a great networker, not least because he's a Freemason, so he uses Masonic networks as well. The book comes out and it's a hit locally. It's not just a hit locally, but a few copies um, circulate more widely. Uh, The book reaches Edinburgh. Burns, and this is the hardest thing I think for us to deal with in our time um, is on the point of emigrating to Jamaica to work on a slave plantation Why do you want to do that? To make money and to get the hell out from Gene Armour's relatives Uh, um, uh, He's in trouble, He, he has us so often in his life, woman trouble Uh, he seems reluctant in some ways to go to Jamaica he misses the boat several times and ultimately instead of sailing to the New World he rides across Scotland to the New World of Edinburgh where there's a chance his poems can have another edition Uh, That edition comes out, 3,000 copies now, so about five times the size of the Kilmarnock edition, and it's a big hit. It's a big hit socially. Burns, suddenly, is the man you want at your party if you're an Edinburgh socialite.
1: Um, So he has
3: made it then.
1: Is there any way to summarise why that impact was so big at the time?
3: I think it's bound up with the charisma people felt he had as an individual. Walter Scott, who only met him once, talks about the brightness of his eyes. A lot of people testify to that. You can hear an acoustic equivalent of that brightness in the poetry. It's jaunty, it's lively, it winks. There's a kick of mischief to it. There's a whisper of mischief to it. The very first poem in his first book is called The Twa Dogs and is, as its title suggests, about two dogs. The subtitle is A Tail. Is that a joke? I think it is. Um, And Burns goes on making jokes throughout this book. One of his most famous poems is set in church. It begins with the sound HA! exclamation mark uh, which is a bit like sneezing in church or maybe more laughing in church Mm. that's the poem to a louse so there's a vein of humour runs right the way through although the poems may also be about ruin about despondency uh, about love there's tremendous range to them
1: was there a sense of patronage or surprise in the idea that he was a heaven sent ploughman yes he was patted
3: on the head a little Uh, Henry Mackenzie, Edinburgh lawyer, who uses that phrase of him, uses it to encourage him, but also, I think, just a wee bit to talk down to him. Nonetheless, Burns encourages this notion that he is a ploughman poet, a kind of people's poet, a bard, a word he loved.
2: I would take a slightly different view of the Mackenzie review in The Lounger, which is that Mackenzie uses the term uh, uh, ploughman poet directly after he's made a comparison between Burns and Shakespeare a comparison which immediately says he doesn't doesn't mean to have made and then later on he talks about Burns woodnotes wild which actually Burns uses as a motto on his coat of arms later but that reference woodnotes wild is a reference to the depiction of Shakespeare in Milton's L Swedish Shakespeare fancy's child Warbling his native wood notes wild. L'Alegro was a highly fashionable poem in the late 18th century. What Mackenzie is doing, I think, is actually portraying Burns as an equivalent to the unlettered nature's child of Shakespeare and making him for the first time a Scottish equivalent of Shakespeare.
1: Can we get to the perger now? Um, let's start with To the Mouse. There's a big contrast between the first Let Us Call It stanza and the second stanza. Now, could you read the first stanza the way it would have, he would have read it and it would have been heard then? There's okay. a book. Now, one of, who can read it best? There, the first stanza.
3: We slicket cowering, timorous beastie, Oh, what a panic's in thy beastie, Thou needn't start away so hasty with bickering brattle.
1: I would be laith to run and chase thee with murderin' patel. And then it switches to an ad- in the second verse is enlightenment English.
2: It certainly is do you want to do we? that. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union, and justifies that ill opinion which makes thee startle at me, thy poor earthbound companion and fellow mortal.
1: So is that a clue and a good clue to the way he mixes up his different languages? Can it, I have my book it, back, it, please? It it
2: certainly <laughs> it, it certainly is, but uh, my um he does it for many for different thematic reasons. He does, as a as a much more recent comment would put it, he does the police in different voices. He 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 do, he, he creates. Different voicings to create different perspectives, and what he's doing there is that the enlightened voice is a Smithian, a Smithi- Smithian perspective. Smith's, Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments is very influential on Barnes. But one of the things that that Smith argues is that uh, ultimately language will have to be standardised in order for commerce and uh, trade to be international. And what Barnes is doing is intensely localizing language, so that he actually puts he the what he's doing into into a moose is putting Smithian sympathy in the context of an Ayrshire farmer's perception.
1: And he's also localising his subject matter. I mean, aren't many poems written to a mouse, and out of it yeah. he gets a line which is quoted at a getting, best laid plans of mice and men, going off to clay, and on it goes, Steinbeck takes it up, and yeah. it's quoted, I presume, all over the place, all the time. So he brings that out of a close-up of a mouse. He then turns his attention, I don't know the order of this, this might have been first, to a louse, Fiona Stafford. Now, what does he get out of the louse?
0: Well, in a way, I think a louse is an even less likely a dressy than a mouse. And I think he's very fond of uh, playing on people's uh, conventional expectations uh, and their sense of a creature that is somehow vermin or hideous or undesirable in some way. Um, and, and the poem begins with um, playing on that because uh, it's a louse that he's seen on a young lady's bonnet in the church. Um, and uh, I think everybody reading that has a little shudder imagining this louse creeping across your your, your bonnet. So why
1: um, is he doing that? I mean, it's a wonderful poem. And again, he gives us a, a, a great line. Um, oh, Woodson... Oh, you're going to have to say this. Uh, oh, uh, Woodson.
0: Woodson power, the, the gifty, the gifty gears, gears to see ourselves as others see us. That's right, Yes. Yeah.
3: And that's very Adam Smithian. That's Smith's Wealth of Nations versi- at the
1: same time, yeah. That's mm-hmm. a
3: straight Scots versification of a little passage from Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments, a book of philosophy that had been published in the year of Burns's birth. So that's a hint as just to how well-read and well-educated Burns is, but it's also a hint as to how easily he can move between English language and what he calls the Scottish dialect. Fiona. Yeah, no.
0: But I think it's also a joke on himself because it sounds very authoritative because it is uh, an allusion to Adam Smith, who's a very kind of dominant moral philosopher at the time. But I think that this is one of the reasons I like Burns so much is that he's often self-mocking so the poem appears to be making fun of this young woman who's got her new bonnet, is looking very proud of herself Um, but actually as it goes on you realise that Burns is making fun of himself because there he is in church and he's much more interested in the ladies' bonnet and the lads so that idea of um, could you see yourself as other people see you is a joke as much I think on the speaker as it is on Jenny.
2: And it's also a poem of, of immensely complicated register because as well as that end, the English, he uses both southwestern Scottish and northeastern Scottish dialects. So, for example, flanin toy. Flanin in, in the northeast is a compound that is used to describe eating and foodstuffs. So this is foodstuff for the louse. But in the southwest, it's I mean, literally it's the flannel cap a woman wears, but it's also slang for the female genitalia. So it's the poem is both about sex and about greed at the one time depending how you read the diff, two different elements of Scots dialect.
1: Can we go broader, if we can, I mean, I'm slightly broader than A Louse and a Mouse, Robert Crawford. What is his relationship with the natural world in his poetry? What could we say about that? Well, he's a farmer poet uh, and he'll talk to anyone.
3: Uh, he'll talk to a lord, he'll talk to a louse uh, and that, sense of switching tone and yet remaining in a sense someone who speaks with a democratic voice is absolutely essential to Burns Can and you give Burns's us an example tone. of that?
1: I mean he, he has Burns a good old curse
3: Burns hymns what he calls the royalty of man uh, Burns' ideal is the man independent mind who looks and laughs at all that, and by all that, in that particular song he means lords and uh, honours and emblems of hierarchy. They don't matter to Burns. Uh, What matters to Burns is the nature of the particular addressee in front of him, be it a louse or a lady
1: or a mouse or a man. But in terms of the natural world, the rivers of Scotland, he wants to make the rivers of Ayrshire as, as famous as the Thames. Yes, so. he wants to sing his
3: locality. And he does love rivers flow gently, sweet Afton. He likes wandering up river banks. He likes that kind of scenery of gentle hills and wooded glens that you find in the Ayrshire he grew up in. Uh, he also likes highland scenery. Yeah. Uh, he likes mountains and snow. And yet only up to a point. Uh, People often say uh, Burns grew up, particularly in one of the farms he lived in when he was young, looking right across to the very noble mountains of Arran, which later entranced Wordsworth when Wordsworth visited. Robert Burns never mentions them. He has a farmer's sense of the land, I think, and of the creatures on the land. One of his breakthrough poems is spoken by a dying sheep. Ah, uh, he likes different voices, he likes speaking to animals, and sometimes he likes it when the animals speak back. So he has a farmer's sense of nature's social union, rather than simply a kind of touristic gaze. However much later in his life he may go on highland and lowland tours. Fair
1: enough
0: just coming in on that point, I think he's quite an unusual farmer that he is sympathetic to a mouse Um, that seems to me not not the typical farmer's attitude especially not if he's busy ploughing and he happens to turn over a mouse and and her nest, Um, I think to be honest, quite a lot of farmers would probably just keep going on with the work. So so he, I, I agree with you up to a point, but I think he's quite an unusual farmer in some ways.
3: That's an abs- absolutely fair point. What he's doing with that mouse, though, is he's using it as an emblem of what we might now call habitat loss, but he's also thinking about... Uh, the fact that his own family may be put out of their farm Mm -hmm. it's a poem written just after one of his brothers has died as a teenager so although sometimes people might want to think of To a Mouse with its wee slicket cow and timorous beastie as almost a Disney type cute poem it's actually a poem fearful of ruin and eviction and it's quite a dark poem.
1: Yes and he emphasises with that fear himself doesn't he but coming to you Murray um, he wrote Songs, a lot of songs. Uh, um, Can you tell us... I know there's so many. Can you tell us how... Did they come easily to him? Who provided the music? What happened?
2: Um, Well, Boren spent most of the latter part of his career with some big set-piece exceptions like Tamashanta writing or editing songs. So when he's in Edinburgh, he's introduced to James Johnson, who's just about brought out the first volume of the Scots Musical Museum, as it's called, which Burns contributes a couple of uh, songs to, notably "Green Grow the Rashizo. and then Burns subsequently co-edits and starts to write prefaces for the next four, uh, the next four volumes, and the and the last one, the sixth volume, occur, uh, appears after Burns dies, which is brought out by Johnson. So, we when it's this, we we attributed. Um, a hundred of those songs to Barnes. Eventually, two two hundred and fifty, probably one hundred and fifty to two hundred, are mostly by Barnes. His what he does typically is he gets a traditional song, and he edit and he edits it. Sometimes very significantly, he improves it. Uh, sometimes very significantly. Sometimes to a more limited extent, the tunes are provided um, by uh, the Episcopalian organist of St Patrick's Church in the Cowgate. Um, but mostly from early 18th century collections.
1: Where did all Lang Syne and My Love is Like a Red red Rose come from?
2: Well, um, all Lang, Lang Syne is uh, 17th, uh, 17th century, there are some 16th century elements. Did he find the words? He found, he found a large number of the words. It is... Why
1: say found? You mean they were already written and he, he, he took them up?
2: He took up he took up a significant portion of what we now know as old lang sign from pre existing versions, which is one of the reasons it's a it's a poem in the eighteenth song in the eighteenth century of Jacobite exile, which is why "Seas between us bray roar for example survives in uh in burns's version in terms of in terms of my love is like a red red rose i think I think Robert might want a word here because Robert thinks that um, Robert i think um uh thinks that that poem derives from Barnes' relationship with James Hutton and I think it's more, there is more traditional, ele- there are more traditional elements again that Barnes is picking out there but what he does is he perfects the elements that he finds and he, but he's not actually particularly musical there is a weakness in some of the in some of the tunes and they're sustained by earlier 18th century collections Barnes is not that musical, he can do a little bit but he can't really edit music beyond the um, the lines are musical, aren't they? I mean, yeah. my,
1: you, my love is like a red, red rose, this newly sprung in June, the dance is like a. Banana, and so on and so forth.
3: I think he has a great ear, but by all accounts, he wasn't a great singer. So he wasn't formally musical but he has a poet's ear for language and that lets him recast, remake songs so that sometimes it's quite difficult to tell how much of the song pre-existed Burns and how much of it is Burns. You might say, oh he's a plagiarist then, but actually no, he's able through recasting these songs to fuse his voice with the voice of traditional song. If you think of a song like A Fond Kiss, his famous song of parting. A fond kiss and then we sever. A farewell and then forever. Now, the earlier version of that song has the verb sever in it, but it's hidden away in the middle of a line. Burns takes it and makes it the end, the rhyme word in the first line, and that sense of severance is therefore intensified. He had a genius for taking earlier material and remaking it with a with finesse.
1: Fiona, so he's there in Edinburgh, the toast of the town, a celebrity in his own lifetime, with, with that, that book out and taken up here, there, and everywhere. Um, and is it then that he is he, developing? Is he developing his poetry? Is this when he comes to write Tamashanta? And how important is that?
0: Um, he writes Tamashanta a little bit later. I yeah. think when he's in Edinburgh, he is um, he is wanting to expand his edition, but I think he's also rather overcome by the expectation. I think having had. Such an unexpected, massive success. Um, And I think coming from the background that Murray's described to find himself fated by all the great men of Edinburgh and have, you know, young Walter Scott sort of sitting at his feet at these uh, literary salons, I think actually it was quite overwhelming for him. He writes to one of his friends uh, saying that he, you know, he's... uh, uh, he, he. he feels that the expectation is, is, is beyond his, his powers and he looks into the future down as he would into a bottomless pit. It, it, he writes in one of his letters from Edinburgh. So I think actually, although he's very excited by all the success, there's something quite intimidating about it as well.
1: Um, so he comes to Tamashanta a bit later, but it'd be useful to pause and have a look at Tamashanta mm. now. So tell us about Tamashanta, please.
0: Well, Tamashanta, I think, is really interesting because it is rather different in character from the poems that have made him so famous and successful. There's nothing really like Tamashanta in poems, chiefly in the Scottish dialect. So Tamashanta uh, is um, a witch's tale. It's a fusion of different local folk tales, probably. Um, and it's quite a longish, na- by Burns standards narrative poem. Um, he, he writes it uh, in um, rhyming tetrameter, Couplets uh, and it runs on and on, and it has this, it has this sort of jaunty, gallopy atmosphere. Um, gallop
1: because he's on a horse. He got drunk in a pub with pals, and in a dark night left his wife at home. That night, right. night, drunk, goes out on the horse and comes across a witch's coven, and he's very excited because he likes to look at the witches. Then they turn on him.
0: That's it, in a nutshell? Please. <laughs> yeah, he says it at much greater length, but <laughs> that is absolutely <laughs> what, what happens. So, he, what
1: was the strength of it? Why did it take on?
0: Uh, well, I think partly because it's so funny, uh, partly because it is so well well written and well composed, partly uh, because I think people just get drawn into it, um, and it is very unclear because he is so drunk exactly what he what he's seeing, um, and I think that the whole kind of idea of riding home on your own in a terrible storm. Seeing the ruined church lit up which you know is haunted anyway and then do you go and have a look? Of course he does Um, and then what he sees is very intriguing and and you get drawn in and the narrator of Tamashanta is quite voyeuristic so he's encouraging the readers also to be really interested in what's in the church and what's in the church is quite horrific Um, it's presented in this comic way because the, the, the rhythm's so jaunty but actually what he sees is old Nick playing his pipes and this dance of witches and warlocks with all the all the coffins standing open um, so it is quite a horrific scene uh, and the idea that Tam is really just interested in the most attractive of the witches who's wearing a dress that's too short for I gets so excited that he cannot keep quiet and he eventually shouts out famously well done cutty Sark," which means well done very short dress uh, and in an instant all was dark
1: Robert Crawford it's often said that he's got a democratic voice <coughs> Is that true, and how could you illustrate it, if it is true? I think
3: it is true. Uh, I think it it comes, as I was saying earlier, from the way he talks to uh, anybody... Uh, In the same tone, uh, the way he sings what he calls the royalty of man, that's in a poem addressed to George Washington. He seems to have been pretty sympathetic towards the American Revolution uh, and I think towards aspects of the French Revolution as well. We can call him a poet of a markedly democratic voice, but it's important to, to, to remember, first of all, he couldn't vote most people in his Ayrshire had no vote, Uh, and secondly, that the word democracy, especially in the 1790s, was a very dirty word in Britain. So Burns doesn't use the word democracy, I think, anywhere in his poetry, and yet what we hear repeatedly is this democratic tone of address and this celebration of what we would hear as a democratic voice.
1: Full of brothers be together and yes. friends will be together. Man and to man, the world or, or, or shall brothers or. be
3: for all that. Yeah. Yes. 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 That,
1: that sense that's in the man to man, that's poverty, yes. isn't it? Yes.
3: Yeah. Um, uh, 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 and, and Burns, you can hear sometimes echoes of French revolutionary song in Burns. For Are instance.
1: they echoing him or is he echoing them? No, he's echoing them, I think. Yeah. Murray Piddock, uh, so let's continue this revolutionary strain. Uh, do, how much evidence is there for the fact? For him being a revolutionary,
2: um, I I think the evidence is not that strong. I, I think there's a clear evidence that he's sympathetic to the American Revolution, and that he uses, for example, uh, in um, the rights of women, the saira from the French from the French revolutionary lexicon. He's a bit concerned that he'll be investigated for. Um, uh, for uh, uh, revolutionary, revolutionary incarnations in the 1792-3, and that's headed off at the pass. But there still isn't a lot, there, there really isn't a lot there because he's also joined the Company of Archers in 1792. Uh, who he, he also writes, who shall not sing, God say the king shall hang as high as, the, high as the steeple. He does say don't forget the people, but forgetting the people is, I think, hard, in my view, hardly necessarily a full-scale democratic commitment, he does think about joining the army and fighting for George III in the Americas at times. So I think the key to Burns, the reason that he's appealed in that sense, uh, taking, moving to, from the, the revolutionary to the international sphere of Burns to, uh, across the world is because it's to be found in an early poem of his about his relationships to women, his feeling hurt but acts apart they easy prey for Rab Mosquiel. The feeling hurt is always acting a pert. It's got a voice which can be listing and going for a soldier. It's got a voice which can be sympathetic to revolution or at all the rights of women. It's a voice that condemns slavery and it's a man that considers going to work on a plantation in Jamaica. He's a slippery He's a slippery ca- character.
1: Fiona Stafford, you, we mentioned earlier the impact of celebrity. He was a drinker anyway, but he really turned to alcohol here.
0: Yeah, I think he always enjoyed a drink. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And lots of his um, his famous poems are about about Scotch drink or whatever. Um, but I think he did drink more and more uh, with that, without a doubt. Uh, and I think that would be a way of interpreting that that he he was finding life actually rather unmanageable, partly because of his fame, partly because of all these babies we were talking about earlier. I think he and had the debt. Yes, and exactly. His brother's uh, debt that he is he on his shoulders. He's in financial difficulty as well, so he has a lot of a lot of pressure on him. Um, and I think that was uh, that was one of the contributory factors uh, for him drinking. Um, Robert, two Robert other probably.
3: things maybe to add to that uh, would be that he seems to have had a depressive streak. He had a kind of breakdown when he was about twenty-one. Uh, And although it's hard to diagnose this from a 21st century point of view, the word Burns uses of it is hypochondria. He doesn't mean by that um, imagining illnesses. He means closer, I think, to something that that was called hypochondriasis in the 18th century and was often connected both with stomach problems and with low spirits. And these kind of depressive episodes recur... Uh, in which case the worst thing you could do is take more drink Uh, but I think he's also under kinds of pressure at the end of his life um, coming from the fact that he's a servant of the crown, he's working as an excise man by the 1790s and yet the last long conversation with Burns to be written down uh, describes him and a friend as staunch Republicans so there seems to be a clash between perhaps some views at least that he expresses in private and that may come into some of his poems uh, and Other poems where he's asserting apparently a fierce loyalty to the crown uh, and is frightened, I think, about being taken to task for opinions that would not be appropriate to a civil servant.
1: He is playing the part, as, as you said, Murray. But is this going to be going to run a... run a slave in play yes. his next mm-hmm. size man? He is he, a farmer in the fields uh, and so on. He's not quite a
3: chameleon poet, yeah. as Keats argued poet should be, but he's certainly often self-dramatising, and he will dramatise one mood, one position, mm-hmm. and then another mood, another position. In the same way as, although we think of him as a great singer of male love songs, he also also uh, writes songs from a woman's perspective. You know, so he—he's an imaginative artist. He enters into uh, various kinds of
2: being, tonality, and mood. I think it's—it's it's fair to say that uh, in terms of his private views, you know. Uh, uh, he slightly disagree in emphasis, Robert, that he also is very pleased to say tonight I dine with a lord after having a dinner with Lord Dare. So he, he's very capable of expressing of repre- expressing republican sentiments to what might be sympathetic to what might be sympathetic or uh, ears, but he's equally capable of um, sounding like rather a snob. So, um, the, uh, so I think the question for Burns is the man of independent mind is also a man who has got who sets himself above the coward slave and he's very uh, to quote from uh, A Man's A Man for All That and I think he's very well aware of that in himself
1: Fiona
0: yes I was just going to go back to um, Murray's reading of the Heaven Taught Ploughman actually and that comparison with Shakespeare uh, because that's that's partly what Mackenzie's putting his finger on, isn't it? That that Burns does have this ability um, to adopt different voices and, diff- and different roles and I think one of the difficulties is that even when he's writing letters, um, which are obviously a major biographical source uh, he's adopting different voices depending on who he's writing to um, so I think he's very aware of, of different audiences and of not necessarily um, being pinned down to a particular position
1: I Did, is, Sorry, Robert, can, I, can we towards the end now? Did was his reputation, he he woke up almost like wine to find himself famous did his reputation, was it lowered, he died when he was 37, did it stay steady or did it it grow what's going on there? It grows
3: among not least the English Romantic poets uh, Keats uh, Wordsworth uh, and others make pilgrimages to the Burns Wordsworth country. was, it, was yes. very taken and Wor- so Wordsworth, was Re- Wordsworth to... reads Burns when he, he Wordsworth, is young mm. uh, and Wordsworth's notion of writing in a selection of the language really used by men mm. is very Burnsian except Wordsworth seems to comb the dialect oh. out of his poetry you know, if only Wordsworth hadn't gone to Cambridge he might still have written in Cumbrian dialect <laughs>
1: That would have been the thing, wouldn't it uh, And, and Life Burns, would have been and Burns different.
3: by the same chance might have been ruined by going to university. We can't, we can't tell that. But, but he certainly makes a big impact <laughs> on the generation of poets after him, and he goes on making an impact. Not least in America, Whitman is fascinated by Burns. Whitman, again, a poet who wants to have a kind of bardic voice, doesn't sound like Burns, but recognises the bardic element in so Burns. So
1: he's moved to America, Murray, and he's, he's translated, He's getting translated all over the world. And then he becomes very important in China, Russia, Germany, on it goes.
2: Yes, I mean, he's, he's first translated before his death uh, in ger- into German in 1795, though I don't think he was aware of that. Um, and uh, the, transla- the translation by Franz Frilligrave, A Man's a Man for All, that. Trotz Alledame, becomes the key song of the 1848 revolution and in a slightly altered form remains a song of the German left from nineteen eighteen to the present day, so that song is is almost as almost as common on YouTube and other platforms as the original a man 's a man
1: and in the long march they sang indeed indeed in the march uh, long
2: march, which was on this, the one they sang there. my heart's in the high, my heart's in the highlands <laughs> but uh, uh, and he was uh, it certainly it, both in in China he was used in the cultural revolution because he was the example of of an intellectual who could stay on the land and in Russia he was Used as an example by Stalin's translator Samuel Marshak of the good kulak, the kulak who didn't want to just amass wealth and money, but was uh, but was happy for uh, honest poverty and independence of mind.
1: Finally, Fiona, how did he knead into the growth of the Romantic poets the Nam movement? They they went up to his cottage in uh, in numbers, and uh, so they touched the the Grail, as it were.
0: They certainly did, um, and it was the all the kind of famous romantic poets we can think of were influenced by Burns so Wordsworth and Coleridge but also Dorothy Wordsworth was very taken with Burns she was she was laughing about to allow since 1787 straight away and Keats, yes, yeah. Keats, Keats went on a pilgrimage and he tried to write a poem in Burns' cottage and was very unhappy with his performance, so Burns had obviously produced a great anxiety of influence in Keats um, but you find Jane Austen obviously very familiar with Burns, which is a, another thing that surprises people.
1: Well, thank you very much thank you Fiona Stafford, Robert Crawford and Murray Pittick. All suggestions for our Listener Week by tomorrow, 25th of October please. Next week it's hybrids when two species cross and make a different entity as part of the constant motion of evolution. Thank you for listening.
0: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
3: Could could say a wee bit more about his legacy to the present yeah. and to more recent poetry. Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah. Do you want to say that? Please, the mic's open. I think Burns
3: has an astonishing range of afterlives. Um, Shostakovich uh, during the siege of Leningrad set one of Burns' uh, most moving songs Oh, worked Thou in the Cold Blast Burns has a huge range of afterlives in classical music mm. uh, though he's associated rightly with folk music um, but in modern poetry as well uh, he's a living force in the work of Seamus Heaney who wrote a lot of verse letters in the Burns stanza, grew up listening to Burns, and I suppose uh, as, as someone who identified with a, with a farming community where a form of Scots was spoken, was drawn to Burns uh, but a rather different poet, Les Murray in Australia, also grew up listening to Burns, had a deep love of Burns, and if you think of Les Murray as in some ways an Australian bard well, there, there are similarities between his stance and some of Burns' attitudes Um, Maya Angelou grew up um, uh, having a very moving encounter with Burns' work, Uh, despite the fact, as we were saying earlier, that Burns nearly went to work on a slave plantation. Nonetheless, his was a voice that spoke to her, a voice of the people, a democratic voice. Um, in contemporary Scottish poetry in Kathleen Jamie, in Don Patterson who has edited Burns' work uh, and, and in, in, in others in Liz Lochhead, in Douglas Dunn, in W.N. Herbert you will hear the Burns stanza you will hear allusions to Burns, so there's a sense in which Burns has just never
1: gone away Well that's the most comprehensive answer to that question <laughs> I've ever had, and thank goodness it's being recorded and it'll whiz around the world for the next, uh, forever really and think, I was it's terrific Thank you. I was thinking of Don Patterson, actually.
2: Right. What I was going doing? to say. I was going to say. I mean, I. am uh, um, very glad to raised that because of, you know, the 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 impact in Beethoven, Haydn, Ravel, Mendelssohn, and uh, down to Erbe Pert is huge, and that's. But I wanted to mention the the supper, uh, the because what, sorry? the Burns supper. Ah, the Burns. Because supper. the Burns supper is actually a unique event uh, in terms of literary celebration. Mm. There are now about nine and a half million people attending. Registered Burns Suppers worldwide. Do they all pipe in the haggis? Uh, they, they, they nearly all do, but not all of them. Not all of them are police. There's usually an inflection from local, uh, from local national culture, into the supper. But because the poetry is always recited, because the songs are always sung, it, it's it's an enormously important part of dissemination. It is in some countries the only element of Scottish culture that people actually see, is the burns, the Burns supper. And originally put together in in eighteen oh one, it seems to have had a relationship to fox suppers. They were quite widespread. There were Nelson suppers, which which took off for a bit and then faded away. Fox suppers were the day before the twenty fifth of January, uh, on for Charles, the Whig politician Charles James Fox. And given what Robert said about Burns's, uh democratic voice and reputation. the fact that fox suppers migrated into barn suppers in the first quarter of the 19th century is is quite interesting but the fact is that today it's at an enormous scale with, with great PR like the highest burn supper in the world, which was done uh, but first of all by BOAC at 11,000 metres in 1961, and then by the late Andrew Fairley, for the, Andrew Fairley on Kilimanjaro for the 250th anniversary of Burns birth in 2009. So I am a devotee of the International Burns Supper. So you're you, going to is, land up in space before we're there? Uh, absolutely. The, the, but Burns in orbit is the next stop. Yeah, this needs to be counterbalanced by the lowest Burns Supper. <laughs> <day>. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, um well I think I'd go back to the eighteenth to the late eighteenth century actually on on this point. Um not about Burns Supper so much, but but actually talk a little bit about his importance for people who um felt that their own regional dialect wasn't wasn't acceptable. I think Burns is hugely important in that way, and I think that's part of his appeal um, in Ireland. But someone like Robert Anderson, the Cumbrian yes. uh, poet, um, is really, really affected by Burns. He's contemporary
1: Wordsworth, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. that's
0: right. Yeah, Wordsworth subscribes to one of his uh, his collections, and yeah. I think the success of Burns, although in some ways some of the kind of reception was a little bit double edged, just gives an enormous kind of boost. It says, okay, you don't need to speak standard English, you don't need to write standard English in order to um, to publish great poetry and I think that's terribly important and I think that had a kind of um, very inspiring effect not just on the famous Romantic poets but on lots and lots of others as well and on women. Anyone who's kind of slightly out of the sort of establishment um, is given a kind of, you know, free pass by Burns. One second,
1: before, but he, at the very beginning of the programme he wanted both, didn't he, from the mouse... He wanted his wee slick it, and then he wanted enlightenment language to follow immediately. He yes. wanted
2: the both. He wa- he always wanted he always wanted that scale of audience. But actually, what Fiona says is directly and true in terms of his use by Czech language activists. In terms of his use to rehabilitate Swiss German. And also in his de- the development uh, Henrik Berglund's development of standard Norwegian in the early nineteenth century. But like many Romantic writers, he had a huge impact on Romantic nation building and articulations of the national self through language.
3: Yes, that that apparently simple title of his first and in a sense his only book, poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect is actually quite complicated Uh, chiefly in the Scottish dialect meaning I'm going to use English sometimes too and whenever I like but chiefly in the Scottish dialect carries a language politics with it at a time where people in Scotland uh, particularly people like me university professors were saying um, write in proper standard English Burns publishes poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect and that championing of speak how you like speak the way you were brought up to speak uh, is something that goes on resonating in Tony Harrison in James Kelman and in
1: later writers That must have been bold of him at the time then he wants to make his name as a poet and he starts off with the dialect, and it's mostly the dialect. And he, does he put the the bits of enlightenment English in just to say I can do this as well if I want to? No, I
3: think he has access to, to yes. that. <laughs> well, no, I was no, no. It's not just a kind of showing off. It's wanting to use the whole spectrum of the language
1: to which he has access to be fully a poet. Yeah, but you think he's doing it to show them he can do it if he wants? I think
0: it. there's a strong element of that because he's presenting himself as the simple bard, isn't he? But he is—he's revealing feeling, um, you know, that he he's read yeah. Adam Smith, that he can write in that if he wishes to. Yeah, but I think um, he, he
2: establishes himself as a sophisticate hmm. by challenging the language that he utilises uh, by the language that he grew up with. And that's, what, that's the sweet spot where he demonstrates that he is actually intellectually capable in all these spheres. He uses just over 2,000 words of Scots and about 75 words of Gaelic too, but he has also a very large English vocabulary. It's, an, it's very much up with and indeed beyond Milton's 8,000 words used. Really? So it's, it's it's a very strikingly wide range of language use that he's got to to cover all these voices, but within them all, to control and to establish his own superiority among and over the ideas of his own time as well as the feelings, and to be... As he is so incredibly elusive, as well as allusive, and uh, comprehensively accessible throughout the world.
1: In fact, yes. what you said it, in the programme about him, when he was he was this this. He, if he wasn't a chameleon, he was nearly a chameleon. And if he wasn't a chameleon and like a chameleon, how would you describe it, Robert? Right. I think he
3: dances through language. He's very, very articulate, and he was physically a great dancer. But he's astonishingly <laughs> nimble. The way he moves through language and the uh, 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 and the way he makes language dance. Um, one of my favourite lines is is the line from that describes the dancers in um, Tamashanter. They set, they uh, the sorry, they reeled, they set, they crossed, they click it. Burns knows and understands dancing he understands rhythm and you can hear that throughout his poetry whether it's sung or whether it's
1: read Fiona you were, were you about to add to that? Uh,
0: no I was only going to just say that obviously in order to be a poet you had to go to dancing classes <laughs> first which wasn't going you know, to add anything to the greatest I the I think that effect, a lot. So
1: It's the most illuminating remark <laughs> we've heard in the last five seconds So, so I apologise for that <laughs> Well, that was a cracker, thank you all very much. The producer can't <laughs> wait to get in and make the offer of the week to you. Not
0: at all, so you want tea
2: or coffee?
0: <laughs> yeah, tea? Yes, yeah, please. Tea, tea, tea the lovely. Tea. Thanks very yes, much. Thank you. Three teas. You know, Simon, yes. i love, I love yeah. a coffee, please. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.
3: Hi, I'm Alistair Souk and I want to tell you about The Way I See It, a brand new podcast from BBC Radio 3. It's a 30-part series in which we're throwing open the collection at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, to some of the sharpest creative minds of our time. We'll be speaking to comedian Steve Martin, writer Roxanne Gay, musician Steve Reich, and many, many more. I'll be your guide throughout the series, so join me as I explore one of the greatest collections of modern art in the world. If you'd like to hear more, just search for The Way I See It on BBC Sounds.